Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the transfer window. This is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis on the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On today's transfer podcast, just as we enter squeaky bum time, Liverpool have relinquished their top position in the Premier League to Man City. We assess how Jurgen Klopp is handling the pressure of their title tilt. Manchester City are facing further financial fair play questions following a wave of leaked emails in German publication Der Spiegel. With serious questions now being asked, we analyse just how bad this could get. And we take you inside the fascinating breakdown and relationship between Leicester boss Brendan Rodgers and Lyon's Moussa Dembele while at Celtic and ask what it means for Rodgers' tenure at Leicester. Okay, gents, well, we better start with Liverpool. They are on a bit of a wobble, not playing well at all. Drew, with Everton, you think that uh, dropping from their top position in the Premier League to second as Man City take their perch might make an impact on their fans and Jurgen Klopp, who seem to be under a bit of pressure, collective pressure. Duncan, what do you make of it? There's no question that they're not in form at the moment. They've drawn five of the last seven games. Um, The last three away games in the Premier League... They've scored one goal, that famously offside goal that Jurgen Klopp, Jurgen Klopp blamed for him not winning the game at West Ham United. Um, I don't think they've played a good game in 2019. Um, honestly, don't think they've performed at the level we have seen them perform in 2018 in a single match this year. So extrapolate from that and you would say they're in serious difficulties. What they have in their favour is they have a lot less games to play than Manchester City. A lot less, far less condensed schedule. Manchester City still in the FA Cup. Um, Almost certainly through to the next round of the Champions League. Question marks over whether Liverpool make it to the next round of the Champions League with Bayern uh, Munich to play away. And City have got injury problems. You know, they've they've lost Laporte, who's very important, ironically, to... um, Pep Guardiola's attacking scheme because of the way he passes the ball forward at the weekend. Um, they lost Kevin De Bruyne to hamstring injury for, I think that's the third series injury he suffered this season. Um, so unlikely to be back for several weeks um, and might be difficult to get him back to top level form. Actually, I don't think he's been at top level form all, all this season. So those things are in their favour, but something has to change at Liverpool. Um I think they have, I mean, we've talked about this in the podcast before, but I think Jurgen Klopp's conservatism in this title race, having established a a 10-point lead, is is costing him. I do not understand um, a game on on Sunday 
um, where mentally, more than anything else, um, from a morale point of view, they needed a victory. They needed to go back on top of the Premier League. They needed to um, shout the doubters down. Um, they needed to restore confidence within the camp. I do not understand why, when he was faced with an opponent who um, bravely, I think, put on more attacking players as the game went on and who pushed for a victory when an nil-nil result was going to, always going to be seen as a great success by the Everton support and by outsiders. Why Jurgen Klopp then went negative um, when there was the opportunity to, to steal a, a goal win at Everton, which is something Liverpool have a, a long history of doing in, in these fixtures. Um, why he's taking an attacker off, um, in fact, his most informed attacker, Sadio Mane, off in the last 10 minutes and putting um, a midfielder into into play. The more that game, first half, Liverpool was a better side. They had better opportunities. Uh, once Marco Silva brought Hishalison on at half-time, I think it balanced out. And as the game went on, Everton looked more likely to score. But in the circumstances, what was Klopp doing there? And I think his reaction post-match with the, you know, it's, it's now becoming almost cliched that he comes up with a ridiculous excuse um, after every uh, drop, every time they drop points against someone, that this one being that the wind was blowing from all directions and it made it, too, made it hard for them to play football. But then to go after um, Liverpool press pack reporters asking him whether about his substitutions and whether he could he should have been more aggressive in these situations, I think was very telling of where Jurgen Klopp is and the problems that Liverpool face at present. I think that's correct, Duncan. Um, <clears throat> I'd say that uh, you know rather controversially, I, I, I admire Jurgen Klopp's honesty because uh, Fergie famously called it squeaky bum time, but he just called it out and said it was wind. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was affecting uh, this stage of the title race. Um, <clears throat> but seriously, um, like, the trust between a manager and his players is either unbreakable or it's fragile. And once it becomes fragile, then that's when things start to go wrong um, for football clubs, whether you're fighting for a title or fighting for, against relegation, etc., etc. Um, what we've seen this season is Jurgen Klopp give his um, very talented group of players license, I'd say up until December, maybe slightly before that, to go out and destroy everything before them. And and said to them, look, go out and play a natural game. Um, tactically, we all know what we're supposed to be doing. Um, they did that and they were scoring goals for fun, etc. Cetera, et cetera. They were playing really well. And then since then... Since being top of the league for, I think it was 11 weeks um, until last weekend, um, Klopp has changed. It's, it's almost, he has become, as you said, Duncan, more conservative. And when you send that message to players, they start to doubt you. They start to doubt themselves. Because players will always want to go and express themselves, will always want to go and win games rather than go out and be told to play, not to lose. And what's happened at Old Trafford and at Goodison Park in the last week is that we've got a Liverpool team who are used to being told to go out and win, have been told, do not lose this game. When you do that, I think you're at least half, if not a whole man down um, on the pitch because the mentality of the players has to change. They become 
like their manager, more conservative. They're more driven by safety and defending. Uh, and this is a Liverpool team who, who, although they are the best defence in the league, consider only 15 goals so far um, with nine games to go, which is really very, very impressive. But with that kind of stability at the back, they should be allowing the strikers to go forward and play on that incredibly quick counter-attack that we've been used to seeing. So what you do is you dampen the confidence of some players. And I think we've seen that um, at Goodson Park with Manny, with Salah specifically, who had three very good chances so you'd expect him to convert at least one. People are saying Salah's off the boil. Well, he's still got 17 goals and nine assists this season. He's one goal behind Sergio Aguero in uh, the race for the Golden Boot. So I think it's unfair to, race, uh, to place all the blame uh, on Salah not performing the way he did last season. Instead, I would say last summer, Klopp and Liverpool and the, the PhD math geniuses in the recruitment uh, uh, department there <clears throat> should have said, we cannot expect Mohamed Salah to have the same kind of season, a better season. He can only go down. If he stays, stays there or goes up, then it's an advantage. But we should have more support for him this year. And they don't quite frankly. And Klopp's not doing Salah or the team any favours by keeping Salah on the team. You could easily play Shaqiri um, instead if you needed to and give Salah a little rest, which makes him more hungry when he comes back to get things right. So I think for Liverpool right now, um, there is a, a real worry. that I think at a point down, anything can happen. And I'm, I'm not a naysayer who thinks Liverpool are, are not going to win the title because they have five draws in the last nine or eight games. I do think they've still got every chance of winning this because we can't legislate for things like mad penalties or own goals or you know offside decisions that are and couldn't be. And we saw a couple of them at the weekend as well. So I think it's all still to play for. And as Duncan, you've pointed out about the run-in being... Um, looks like being a little bit easier for, for Liverpool overall. Um, this will still go down the wire, I believe. But Klopp is not helping himself or his players by the way he's conducting himself in public um, in press conferences and making bizarre statements. And as you said, Duncan, going after members of the press as if to say, this is your fault, you've lost your nerve. Well, no, 29 years is a long time to win a league title. I think the fans, the club, Klopp, the players are all beginning to feel the weight of that on their shirt and on their shoulders. Okay, Manchester City are facing a further wave of leaked emails in German publication Der Spiegel relating to financial fair play. Uh, The magazine has published claims that include that the city owner, Sheikh Mansour, injected funds directly into the club to top up sponsorship income. Now, we've been discussing this issue for, for months over and over again. In fact, I think Ian at one point said, I hope I hope listeners aren't going to get bored about this because we've been talking about it so much. But it has reared its head once again. Duncan, how bad can this get for City? I think it can get very bad for City. I think there is, um, you know, there is a huge anger amongst um, English and European football clubs at what I would describe as a, a historic a breach of the rules in a historic scale. I mean, we're talking here about a club um, signing up to competition rules for the top uh, club competition in Europe and then saying they don't apply to us. We are going to find multiple ways in which we can get around these rules. Um, And one of them is uh, 
we have to have increase our revenue to allow us to buy more players. Um, we are owned by one of the richest royal families in the world. Um, we shall pump more money into the club um, under the, the remit of um, that money coming from sponsors um, from the same country that the royal family um, uh, live in. Uh, we don't care if those companies uh, put the money direct themselves, whether it's a proper value to them. Um, we will just pass the money um, to Etihad and Abar and Etisalat and, and then have them put it, put it back into Manchester City's books. And we're talking about over, um, well, in, in one of the emails that uh, that Der Spiegel released at the weekend, they were talking about Eti, um, Etihad's a sponsorship payment of 88.5 million, of which 8 million, just 8 million was coming directly from Etihad itself. The rest was being um, passed to them by Adug, which is the, the parent company for Manchester City. Um, there are many people in UEFA who feel that this has to be properly punished because of the deception involved, uh, because of the deception um, was engaged in when UEFA investigated this and uh, and punished um, Manchester City with a with a restriction on recruitment and spending um, several years back. And the word is that they feel the punishment should at least be um, a season um, out of the Champions League, perhaps longer. So I think that's that gives you a measure of how bad it can get for Manchester City. They're looking at exclusion from the Champions League. Um, the Premier League are also investigating multiple aspects of this. Um, so the Premier League could take sanctions against them. Separately, they're under investigation from FIFA for um, uh, signing underage uh, players. And, and we saw recently that Chelsea got a two-window transfer ban for doing that. Uh, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona have all had two window transfer bans in the past for doing that. Um, so it's not a great leap of the imagination to suggest that Manchester City could find themselves with a ban on conducting transfers in the near future. And I don't think it's coincidental that you, um, you're you seeing stories about Manchester City planning a big overhaul of their first team um, in this coming summer. Uh, maybe four new players um, and if you're looking at four new players for Manchester City you're probably looking at expenditure and transfer fees of over two, easily over £200 million. Um, so it has huge implications for City um, and I think it has, has big implications um, for football in general in terms of how do you set up rules um, to allow a degree of fair competition in an era in which clubs aren't simply owned by um, very, very rich individuals. They're now owned by nation states who are using football clubs um, as PR projects, as sports washing projects, as um, soft political tools. And, you know, we're talking about this at a time in which, you know, the top club in, in England is owned by a nation state, the top club in France is owned by a competing nation state. And Saudi Arabia are uh, looking at buying Manchester United. So you could have the club that makes the most revenue off its own back, owned by one of the wealthiest uh, nation states in the world, 
um, and think of the implications that has in terms of uh, competitive balance and and how you frame the rules to try and, and retain competition within the, the events that we we so enjoy watching as fans. I think one of the most important aspects of where we are now with this particular issue is that the very foundation of football in Europe um, is being challenged in in this particular um, aspect of the way the game is policed. Um, I've spoken to a few people uh, I know in UEFA and FIFA, and the there is a, a mood and there is, a, a, I think, a motivation and desire to draw a line in the sand, if you excuse the pun, given the Middle Eastern um, involvement. Um, the need to reassert authority over rogue clubs who decide that they think that the rules do not apply to them. And there is no coincidence, I think, um, and uh, all you conspiracy theorists out there, feel free to get in touch and tell me I'm wrong, that these um, emails, um, this evidence, these allegations are coming out in Der Spiegel, one of the most respected magazines in the world in terms of factual investigation, but also in Germany, where outside of Real Madrid, Bayern Munich is probably the most powerful club historically in football politics that we have in UEFA. And Bayern Munich, more than any other of the elite clubs, I think, is threatened. And I would not be surprised if some of what's coming out is being assisted in some way um, by Bayern um, to Der Spiegel in order that <clears throat> they believe that justice will be done from what's going on. Uh, I think it's erroneous to claim, as many reports have done so this morning, that Manchester City have legal recourse, and by that I mean actual legal recourse in the court of law. Um, there is a FIFA statute, which has been long upheld and upstanding, which bans any um, member of any uh, association which is affiliated to FIFA. <clears throat> and of course, by default or by <clears throat> trickle-down UEFA as well, from suing um, uh, UEFA or any other um, of the continental um, administrative centres. So in that case, Manchester City would have two options. They'd have to go to Court of Arbitration for Sport in Lausanne, where I think they would lose because UEFA and FIFA are just too powerful. Or they could go to the European Court um, of Justice or Human Rights and claim restraint of trade. Uh, as part of um, what they disagree with about FFP. Given that they're a club playing in England and we have a 29th of March deadline for Brexit, <clears throat> any appeal to the European Court is hardly going to work after 29th of March and these allegations stroke any case is not going to be brought before then. So I think City, in the end, they have to swallow this one and whatever punishment they're given because they cannot win either way in terms of um, if it's CAS or if it's uh, courts in Europe. Um, therefore, the, in, the, in, the, in The Hague, they're going to have to just take on board. They can appeal, obviously, and their appeal will be held. And, of course, with most elite clubs, the UF or FIFA <clears throat> tend to be more lenient and either suspend one transfer window ban or suspend part of the punishment uh, based on good behaviour going forward. So... A bit like Chelsea in their two transfer window ban, I, I expect that there will be 
an appeal against and then the actual sanctions will be upheld as such but punishment suspended um, and that will be the warning which both UEFA and FIFA need and want to go out to other clubs but, but specifically as Duncan has uh, very uh, accurately said the ones are owned by nation state or one family um, royal families in the Middle East um, be it now or be it in the future with regards to how they conduct themselves and their investment because the European Association of Clubs, <clears throat> the ECA as it's known, um, will not put up with this kind of what they see as financial doping. Duncan, what's the real politic of what happens if the worst occurs to Man City and they are banned? I mean, there'll be fans sitting there thinking, well, you know, we take a season out of it, you know, we, we win the Premier League, we win the, the League Cup and, and and we win the FA Cup and all will be fine. But there are surely ramifications for the players at the club and the manager. Yeah, that's true. And that, that's, um, you know, that that would be on the assumption that they only get a one-year ban from the Champions League. There's no, no reason why UEFA could, couldn't um, make the ban longer and make it conditional on um, on the club adjusting its revenue um, in the future, so that uh, so the sources are shown to be absolutely um, clean um, and not coming uh, to up uh, to the club via Abu Dhabi, um, channeled through um, Abu Dhabi companies to make it look like um, genuine sponsorship. And now we've talked about this in the podcast before. Uh, the percentage of uh, uh, Manchester City's declared revenue, which is just over um, 500 million in the last accounts, that comes from commercial sources, is incredibly high compared to um, other clubs in the Premier League um, and most other clubs in Europe. Only Manchester United um, have a higher um, commercial, gross commercial revenue in England than Manchester City, and we all know what uh, behemoth. Manchester United are in terms of attracting sponsorship and the, and the skills they've had in in securing that sponsorship and the focus they've had it, on it for so long. So yeah, it's it, we have to see what UEFA do and what UEFA have the courage to implement. But um, once that's decided, then you get the ramifications in terms of what does the coach feel about it, whether he wants to continue if, if he's um, excluded from the Champions League, how many of the players um, will be happy with continuing at the club if they're um, excluded from the Champions League. Manchester City, I have to say, have never, uh, in the Abu Dhabi era, they've never lost a player that they wanted to retain. But, you know, it um, be interesting to know um, if any of the, the players who have signed new contracts um, uh, subsequent to these football leaks revelations have had any clauses inserted in them um, conditional on the club playing in the Champions League in the future if you are you know a top player and that was important to you you would imagine you might consider that when um, renegotiating a contract I suspect Duncan the answer to that in the negotiation would be okay an extra 10 grand a week okay then <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in terms well, of those clauses, yes. You, 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 whether you whether you actually want the clause to for playing in the league or whether you want to use it for leverage purposes, um, I think agents would definitely be looking at it at, at this stage. But you know, there, 
you you look at Manchester City um, supporters' responses, or many Manchester City support, supporters to this, and they seem to think that because three months down the line, nothing has um, happened in terms of a sanction, that Manchester City will get away with this. And then there's another argument that it's FFP was illegal anyway, so um, Abu Dhabi will use their legal um, strength and their financial muscle to scare UEFA into not sanctioning them. And then there's a third argument that these emails are uh, were hacked or stolen, therefore they're inadmissible in court. I mean, that, that's just a, a misunderstanding of legal um, rules in the UK. It is not the case that an email that uh, was hacked um, or stolen is necessarily inadmissible in a UK court case. And anyway, this isn't a court case at this stage. What it is, is UEFA, who govern football, govern Champions League in Europe, deciding whether Manchester City have broken the rules of the competition. And they are the arbiters of that. When you sign up to enter the competition, you adhere to the governing body's rules. If you break the rules, the governing body is allowed to sanction you. It doesn't go to the European Court of Justice. Um, because you're unhappy with the the sanctions imposed upon you by the the rule governing body you signed up to, um, and and it also has to be said, Manchester City's response to this remains a one paragraph on record statement. Not once has Manchester City denied any of these allegations. Not once have they said that any of this evidence that's been presented by football leaks is false. Um, just, I think, I think listeners might find this interesting. When Der Spiegel um, released their story about Jaden Sancho, I think two weeks ago, um, uh, which suggested that Manchester City may have made an illegal payment to an agent in order to secure Jaden Sancho's um, signature as a 16-year-old, um, the Manchester City sent an email around journalists complaining that Der Spiegel had not quoted that statement that they've made about the football leaks in full in the article. Um, what they said was, in relation to the story published this evening by Der Spiegel, and contrary to their assertion that Manchester City FC did not respond to their query, please see below a statement which was sent to them earlier this week. You will have seen this statement before. However, it is important to use it in full, as each element is material, as we pointed out to Der Spiegel in our reply. And then they quote the statement. We will not be providing any comment on out-of-context materials purported to have been hacked or stolen from City Football Group and Manchester City personnel and associated people. The attempt to damage the club's reputation is organised and clear. If you want to break that statement down, again, it doesn't deny anything. Moreover, it's been taken as Manchester City's response is that the emails were hacked or stolen. The statement doesn't actually even say that. It says out-of-context materials purported to have been hacked or stolen. So they're not even making a claim in their own statement that these have been hacked or stolen. And it's, I, I know there's a huge amount of frustration um, amongst uh, journalist communities trying to cover the story, and it's a very important story, that that is all Manchester City have provided on this matter. And I believe there's also a great deal of frustration in UEFA that Manchester City have declined to cooperate on this matter. Um, how it turns out, we'll see. But anyone who thinks this isn't important and anyone who thinks it's just going to um, 
disappear and be ignored um, down the line, I think they're uh, well mistaken. Duncan had a terrific column in Saturday's Daily Record looking at the relationship between new Leicester boss Brendan Rodgers and Leon striker Mr Dembele when they were both together at Celtic. Now, Duncan, this article really went inside that relationship and for me it showed you a lot of the reasons perhaps why Brendan Rodgers may have, have left the club um, and it also showed you a lot of info, gave you a lot of information about why Moussa Dembele was unhappy about the way he'd been managed. It's essentially detailing how the relationship fell apart and, and the, the, the genesis of it is kind of a story we broke in the transfer window um, December uh, 2017 that Brighton and Hove Albion um, wanted to sign um, Dembele uh, in the January transfer window. Um, to improve their attacking uh, options as they tried to remain in the Premier League. Um, they made an offer to Celtic, um, £20 million. Celtic were happy to sell at that price. Um, and Dembele chose not to go. Um, but what went on in the background and what upset um, Dembele was that uh, he played the final old firm game in 2017 and had coaches coming to him congratulating him on the move. A move that his agent or neither he had agreed to. Neither of them had talked to Brighton at that stage. Um, and he wondered what was going on. And subsequently, Brendan Rogers pulled him into his office and explained um, that there was this interest from Brighton that had an offer. And in Dembele's point of view, basically tried to sell the move to him. Um, was telling him how good the manager at Brighton was, what a good club it was to go to, a great opportunity to move to the Premier League, etc., etc., etc. It's all very well, but Dembele didn't want to join Brighton and Hove Albion. He knew that bigger clubs were interested in him. He um, felt that January was a, a very risky time to move because a lot of players had moved in the January window and struggled to, to bed into the new teams, struggled with the change of league. And, and if you're moving to a club where you are under pressure to score the goals to keep them up, um, that makes it even harder in his view. So he and his agent took a strategic decision was, time isn't right, we'll wait till the summer, um, we'll see what offers we have then and we'll make a decision. Um, Rogers then gave, and his, one of his assistants then gave press conferences in which they um, stated that Dembele had been left out of the team because it's effectively because his head had been turned by the interest from the Premier League and it wasn't in Celtic's interest to keep a, a young player who was unfocused um, on the pitch, which of course upset Dembele, but he was advised to keep his mouth shut that um, if he was to go public on any of this, then um, Rogers, being the Celtic supporters' hero, would win the fight and, uh, and things would become more difficult for him. Um, he received threats via social media over his, his um, behaviour in terms of the, the perception that he'd wanted to go to Brighton um, and, uh, and the club had had to block the move when actually um, the, the contrary had happened. When it got to the summer, um, he got eventually got the offer from Leon, which was attractive to him to move to a club in the Champions League, one that was competing for domestic silverware, going to France, being in the, the coach's eye for selection for the national team, etc, etc. Celtic, he believes, were happy to sell him 
Um, they felt financially it was a good offer and it made sense. But he was told, we will not let you go unless uh, Brendan Rodgers approves the move. Um, we're not going to sell you against the manager's will. So um, Dembele then had um, to speak directly with um, Rodgers. He forced the issue with a, a famous um, Twitter um, comment that he made on the eve of transfer deadline day that essentially an honest man keeps his word um, and uh, forced a meeting at the training ground the next day. Um, Rogers uh, basically said to him, you know, uh, I never promised to you that I would allow you to leave this club. And uh, Dembele went into detail explaining exactly um, when that promise had been made, why he'd come to Celtic, um, uh, even even recalling that uh, that Rogers had a, a stain on his white Louis Vuitton shirt that the day they met, and Rogers made that promise to him. Maximum Roger... Brent there. <laughs> <laughs> Rogers then backed down. He was allowed to move, um, but uh, Dembele having moved to Leon, Rogers gave another press conference in which he. Um, basically gave the opposing story and put the blame on Dembele for forcing his way out of the club, which didn't go down well with Celtic supporters. Um, when Rodgers uh, agreed to join Leicester City, um, Dembele again commented on Twitter, which just was a, a one-word comment, interesting. Um, and I think, uh, I think the article will give you a sense of why um, Dembele uh, made that comment and um, what he feels about Brendan Rodgers as a manager, um, and uh, and maybe a kind of lesson to Leicester City um, supporters and what they can expect from uh, Brendan Rodgers' management at the club. Ian, can you pull yourself out of that giant puddle of tears to respond um, to this? I'd say that um, what yeah, definitely what Duncan is how he's explained it is how I've understood it to have um, both developed and transpired. Um, I would add that um, my information was that in the middle of the negotiation in January 2017 to take Dembele to Brighton, that the the player's agents, <clears throat> having agreed a contract verbally uh, with the Premier League club, suddenly upped the, the weekly wage by over a third, which was not in the agreement. And so things were not quite as clear-cut in terms of both uh, Dembele and his agents' um, part in this. Um, they, they may well have um, believed or have said that the player didn't want to go to Brighton or whatever, but in actual fact they made what was seen as an unreasonable demand at the um, 11th hour with regard to what their client could expect to get um, by by moving in January 2017. That's one thing to say. The second thing I'd say as well is that um, I've heard worse stories about how a player's been managed by any head coach at a big club um, in terms of, uh, you know, whatever... People talk about verbal agreements. I mean, when are players or, or agents or anyone going to learn that verbal agreements mean nothing in football? That there's no honour amongst football administrators, players, as much as there is amongst these anymore. 
So any verbal agreement there is to say, oh, we'll let you go next summer if you play for another year is just nonsense. A football club will always try and maximise its income from any given asset. And that's how modern football works. Um, and also a manager who is in a, a club like Celtic, where, um, as we've seen since he left in the last 10 days, where the perception is almost greater than the reality. I, and by that I mean the perception of your loyalty to the cause, to the club, like, like Celtic. Whereas obviously that loyalty, perception, etc., doesn't exist in clubs who don't have as rich a history and tradition as Celtic do. Um, managers would not expect to receive the kind of vitriolic abuse for leaving that, that Brendan Rodgers has had. So, yeah, yeah, just just on that, that's a really interesting point because I've talked to several English colleagues who just cannot get their heads around the level of opprobrium that's been aimed towards Brendan Rodgers from Celtic well, fans. Well, okay, <clears throat> I, I can speak from both sides of this argument. Well, exactly. It's well, it's well, you know, documented that I'm a Celtic fan by birth, uh, and I've got no problem admitting that. Um, <clears throat> and therefore, yes, I was disappointed when Brendan Rodgers left the club mid-season, <clears throat> as it were, in the in the the course of what could be another historic season, a treble, treble, etc., etc. Not least for the David Bowie song that you could, you know, the fans could sing about rebel, rebel, treble, treble. But um, that aside, <laughs> that aside. Not that you've really <clears throat> thought about it. <laughs> I haven't. But that aside, um, I thought the banner, um, which was displayed in the Hearts game, but you've, you've traded immortality for mediocrity, <clears throat> is one which I think quite um, significantly and accurately states the state of, uh, so states the um, the actual environment and situation where, which both Rogers and Celtic find themselves in. And having covered uh, English football and the Premier League in particular for you know almost two decades, the only mediocrity that I can see is in Scottish football. And I, 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 I sorry for saying that, but it is. The standard is nowhere near as good. And Leicester City's team and squad right now is probably four times as good as what Celtics is. So even though <clears throat> Brendan Rodgers has left behind the opportunity of playing Champions League football via, what, 100 qualifying rounds because of Celtics' coefficient rating um, for uh, next season, he's left. what he's also left behind is a league which is not competitive, has only become competitive because Rangers are spending money hand over fist on Steven Gerrard's stewardship there. Um, and therefore, testing himself and challenging himself is becoming more and more difficult for him. If I was a Celtic fan in, in situ right now, and by that I mean not here, in, in, if you like, you know, um, in England, not getting to see games live and et cetera, et cetera, not going along with my kids not buying season tickets, which I obviously I'm not, I don't do, and I'm not in a position to do, um, given geography. I would simply say, look, he won every single trophy that he could have won while he was there, outside of domestic ones, obviously the European ones, which he was never expected to win anyway. So look back on his reign as successful because for that reason, and then just you know, in a way, take a little breath here. And ask yourself in three or four years' time, are you going to be thankful for the fact that Brendan Rodgers did spend two and a half years at Celtic and created the success that he did, rather than um, what I see as just mindlessly trolling him for being someone who you think is being disloyal and has betrayed 
the club and the club's history and everything else, because that's not how this works. Yeah, and I'm going to stick up for the Celtic support here because they feel that they've been sold a pup. They feel that they've been betrayed by a snake oil salesman. So what I want to ask you about (laughs) is the larger issue, because Brendan Rodgers has spent the last two and a half years elucidating in enormous detail about how this is his dream job, how he's a Celtic man, he's Celtics in his blood. He's intrinsically linked himself to the DNA of the club with his comments, which is why I think they're so upset about him leaving mid-season. But I suppose the question is, from a larger point of view, does this reinforce and further damage the Brendan Rodgers brand down south, where a lot of people... Um, see him as a sort of joke figure, a Brendan, a David Brent type figure, because those pronouncements have certainly underlined that up here in Scotland, and and, and that's how Celtic fans up here in Scotland are reacting yeah. to it. <clears throat> Interesting though, isn't it? How Celtic fans responded to Billy McNeil being sacked, Tommy Burns, Tommy Craig, uh, Neil Lennon, Martin O'Neill, every one of them Celtic through and through. Every one of them a fan, every one of them a manager who wanted to be there because they were Celtic fans. And yet, has any of them received the same opprobrium as Brendan Rodgers has? Now, you can say to me, oh, they didn't leave mid-season or whatever, or they ended up being sacked because they weren't good enough. But every one of them said the same things. And they probably, and, and, and none of them won as much as Brendan did. I'm not sure any of them had the same level of love even Martin O'Neill that Brendan oh, Rodgers did come at Celtic. On. Billy McNeil, Martin O'Neill. I mean, look, look at the, you know, even Lenny coming back now to Celtic. It's like the second coming of the saviour. He'll, he'll make sure we get eight in a row. He's the man, etc. etc. Like, I understand Celtic fans' disappointment. I understand they feel like a bond has been broken. I do. Because they felt Brendan Rodgers was one of them. But if and it's very difficult for football fans generally to separate themselves from their loyalty to a club. If they had done that for five, ten seconds and said to themselves, if that was me and I was being offered treble my salary, if that was me and I was being offered the opportunity to, to play um, and challenge in a, in a league which is much more highly competitive, what would I do? Ask yourselves what you would do if you were offered three times your salary to go another job. Where's your loyalty there? Do you do that for your family? Do that for yourself? And... And again, I do understand <clears throat> the mid-season thing. I do understand that. But I think Celtic will be fine. So I think, you know, um, there was a great um, quote, wasn't there, from our um, our friend on Transfer Window, Roger Mitchell, where he said that the Scottish title is Celtic's cross to bear. It doesn't mean they have to wear a crown while doing it. And that crown is Brendan Rodgers right now. And I believe that they don't. And I still believe that Neil Lennon will do a very good job and get them over the line. So I think... I, I say I disagree with the opprobrium. I disagree with the vile and quite disgusting re- um, reaction has been to one man's choice, which is entirely his right to take employment elsewhere. Um, no matter what he said or what he's done, he's you know that's his choice to make, and he should not be subjected to the kind of abuse that he's had for having provided Celtic fans with two and a half years of effectively record success. Never, never a double treble done, and certainly, if a treble treble is done, and David Bowie's singing the last day of the season, even though maybe in the guise of Rod Stewart, then it will be Brendan Rodgers who should take a lot of the credit. I think the problem with Brendan Rodgers is the way he carries himself and the things he says. 
which do not adhere to reality. And I, I say that from experience of him working at multiple clubs, things that he's done in the background, things he's said in, in public. A um, couple of little details with Dembele. And this is an important one. When he had Dembele in to try and convince him to remain at Celtic last summer, he, according to my sources, said to Dembele, I am going to be leaving to Leicester City or Newcastle United um, before the end of the season or at the latest at the end of the season and I will take you with me. So please stay and I will take you to the Premier League to play with me afterwards. And, and Dembele's response was, I don't want to play for you, I want to play for Leon. Now, put that in the context of what's happened um, at Celtic with the exit to um, Leicester City. Um, and I think, I think the other thing is when he's interviewed and this is, uh, for me, this is classic Rogers. When he's interviewed by the Scottish press after signing for Leicester City, he talks about how he would hope to come back and manage Celtic again. And it's such a, to me, that just strikes such a detachment from reality, even if he believes it. To say something like that is just, I just don't understand it. And I think, I think for me, there's no coincidence that Brendan Rogers' name begins with a B and ends with an F. It's time for Heroes and Villains now, the round that we do every Monday to look back over the weekend's action and say who we think deserves the awards. Now, we're going to go with Ian first. Who's your hero? Um, I think, and I would hope, that all of our um, wonderfully well-educated and um, <clears throat> listeners with a sense of humour will agree with me on this one, but the Everton ball boy who applauded Jurgen Klopp <laughs> off of the pitch... So Klopp come up to him, and if you see there's a still, where Klopp literally raises his hand as if he's going to give him a good slap across the face, and then remembers, oh no, I can't do that. <laughs> I'm, rain- I'm Liverpool manager, I just, I just can't get myself involved with that. And uh, that boy, despite seeing Klopp come over to him, just kept doing it, he just kept going. He was like one of those little um, pop-up clowns from the, you know, the jack-in-the-box with the, with the, 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 the hands that just clapped all the time. He just kept going. And he just he did not back down in the face of Klopp coming up to him to confront him. And Klopp then actually had to do this Volta Facci where he then pretended that he found the whole thing funny, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And he shows the old um, you know, the Klopp duck teeth as he goes off the, the pitch and and starts applauding the kid. He's my hero uh, for this week, definitely. Um, because you know, if you have that cojones for a twelve year old, you're you're definitely onto something, son. I look forward to working with you in the future. Just, just want to ask you, and you don't, you don't have any illegitimate kids in, in Liverpool. <laughs> not, that, not that I know of. <laughs> oh, almost Some certainly. Some McGarry jeans there, I would say. So, Duncan, well, with Ian uh, so eloquently picking such a terrific uh, oh. hero, who, who's going to be your villain? Um, nothing as amusing as that, but I, I think the villain of the week uh, has to be the great Jamie Redknapp. Who, um, you might not have seen this, but he came out with a suggestion that um, football, um, struggling as it is as a sport, um, not being popular anymore, should be reduced to games of 20 minutes per half um, with loud music played during the matches because um, that's what the kids wanted and they, they, they don't have uh, the attention to watch their, their way through a 90-minute game anymore. So save football by um, completely changing the shape of the game to 20 minutes per month. 
upper half and uh, and as much music as you can in the background. Absolute genius, I thought. That is a terrible, terrible idea. However, there is a, there is an interesting point in there about the way kids now are consuming football media, Duncan. They are consuming it in a more snackable way, watching it on social media, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So perhaps Jamie is slightly onto something. I think I think uh, most people are doing that. I think most people are um, watching bits and pieces and picking up um, things and highlights, etc. But you know, uh, look at the way broadcast revenues for um, television have gone up and up and up and up over the last um, two decades. Why? Because it's the one form of live action that sells on TV and keeps people sat in their seats watching um, for more than 90 minutes through the adverts. Um, yes, there are threats to that, but I don't think uh, I don't think we've got to the stage where we need to fundamentally change the game um, to uh, to ensure that uh, the it's popular. Uh, no sport has ever been as popular as football is at present. Yeah, I agree. He keeps on watching for 90 minutes all the way through the adverts until Jamie Redknapp comes on and then they turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> sensible, sensible, sensible. Well, it's time to slam this particular transfer window shut. But fear not, we are going to be back on Wednesday uh, to fulfil all your podcasting needs with our Your Questions Answered podcast. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own transfer window account at Transfer Podcast. If you want to speak to any of us directly, you can contact me at Johnny R. McFarlane, Ian at GarboSJ, and Duncan at Duncan Castles. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, do us a favour, go online, go to iTunes, give us a five-star review, as this really helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Wednesday, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.